First Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. And then towards the end of the verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. We are considering tonight the God who turns things around. You as Christians can join in singing here with Hannah, because the Lord has turned things around in your life too. Just as much as he has turned them around in Hannah's life. It is true that we need our lives changed more. We need to be sanctified more. We need to be changed more from glory to glory. And I trust that that change is ongoing in all of us. But you can never forget the dramatic change that took place. Whenever you were brought out of darkness into light. That's a great change. That's a great reversal. Once dark, now light. Once unclean, now washed. Once dead, now alive in Christ. So we must never forget that change. And when we remember that change... We will feel like singing with Hannah about this great salvation that we rejoice in. Nor must you despair of your present low estate, even as Christians. Because as believers we are poor and needy. Hannah in her poor low estate pictures how often we feel. It pictures the Church as a remnant, poor and needy. But we mustn't despair. And this psalm is here so that we don't despair because God is a God of reversals. God is a God who can change things and turn them around altogether, who brings his poor people from glory to glory. Now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear as we are looked upon what we shall be. We don't look very much in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of ourselves. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as as he is. And that's a great change. That's a great reversal. A great turning around. That's what God does. We shall be changed, the Bible says. And we can bless his name for that. So God is a God of change. Even as he himself has said, Behold, I make all things new. I make all things different. I turn things about. If we want to use the world's language, how they describe change, They describe it in the term of fortune. Our fortunes change often. Even the world recognizes this. And this is true. 
But what this song of Hannah is telling us is why fortunes change. Why things turn around. Why things are reversed. And the answer is it's God. God Almighty turns things about. And that's what this psalm largely is about. Especially the middle portion of it. Verses 4 to 8. That portion of scripture is telling us of the reversals that God does. If you go through that portion, you will notice that there are 14 reversals in seven pairs. Seven contrasts containing 14 different reversals. You see there in verse 4, the mighty men are broken. That's the first reversal. They that stumbled are girded with strength. That's the second reversal. This prayer that we're considering tonight in verse 4. But then in verse 5, those that were full and those that were hungry. These, these contrasting prayers. And they're reversed. The full hire themselves out for bread and the hungry ceased. And then at the end of verse 5, the barren hath borne seven and her that had many children is waxed feeble. So here's a contrasting prayer again with two reversals. And then verse 6, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. And then verse 7, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. That's the sixth contrast with two more reversals. And then the end of verse 7, he bringeth low and lifteth up. And verse 8 is really an exposition of that enlarged as the prophetess reaches the climax of what God does to his people in bringing them among the princes into the very throne of glory itself. So you have these 14 reversals in seven contrasting pairs. We have to keep in mind why Hannah is waxing large on this. Why she's thinking about reversals and changes that God brings about. Why she magnifies God that changes things and turns things around. Because you see, Hannah experienced that. She has had these reversals in her life. Her mourning has been turned into rejoicing. Her sadness has been turned into singing. Her heaviness has been turned into marvelous happiness as she rejoices in the Lord. Indeed, there is a very strong feminine emphasis in verse 5 at the end. The barren have borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. So there's a wee feminine input there, just a reminder of, of herself. But none of this is limited to her. The truth is, she has hit on a worldwide and a universal truth. A truth in the world and a truth in the church. She's going beyond herself. She's going into time, to the very end of time, in actual fact. She's a prophetess here, under the inspiration of the Spirit. She's raised into the heavenlies and she sees the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, in all circumstances, in all the affairs of men 
of men as individuals and of men making up nations. Not only do people undergo change of fortune, but nations undergo change of fortune through the absolute sovereignty of God. Now notice at the middle of all these contrasting pairs how the emphasis changes in verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. The Lord's name comes in now. There is an emphasis now on God. Now God is clearly the subject of the actions. The Lord killeth, the Lord maketh alive. He bringeth down He bringeth up, the Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. There's the the pronouns and the Lord's name and the emphasis from the middle onwards to the end upon the Lord. Now in verse 4 and 5, that's implied, but not stated categorically. It just says the bows of the mighty are broken. They that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired themselves out. And so on. But it's not really telling us that the Lord has done that. Though we know indeed that the Lord has done that. But now as she waxes and gets to the center. And raises away to the climax. It's the Lord. The Lord. The sovereign absolute one that has done this. God. Is in charge. Of the reversals. He raiseth up. And he bringeth. Low. And in this book of Samuel, we're going to see a lot of those reversals. A lot of change of fortunes. Very many. In fact, it's a book about stories of change of fortunes. What I'm saying is, at this first tower that we're meeting in Samuel, and we'll meet another one again at the end, the same as this, only far, far bigger tower. It's waxed far larger by the end. But all in the middle, this is a book about The absolute sovereignty of God. God is a sovereign one. Hannah saw that. Hannah saw that God turned things around in her life. For he is the sovereign most high. Eli is going to see that. Hophni and Phinehas are going to see that. The Philistines are going to see that. Saul, David, they're going to see this same thing. A whole host of others are going to discover that the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Now before we go through these 14 reversals, let's first go to the end. That's why I read the end of verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he hath set the world upon them. Now notice the word for. So Hannah has been describing all the reversals, all the things that God changes around. Can God do that? Is God allowed to do that? Does God have sovereignty? How can he justly affect all these things? How can he justly turn all these things around in the world? How can he behave regarding the inhabitants of this planet in this way. How can he dispose of people the way he pleases? And the answer is, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he 
have set the world upon them. That's the answer that Hannah gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God brings low, God exalts, God kills, God makes alive. For the pillars of the earth are his. And he has set his world upon them. You could put in there instead of for. Because it means the same thing. Because. This means that God is omnipotent creator. He made the world. But the emphasis is not upon the creation. The emphasis is upon the sustaining of the world. The upholding of the world. The continuing of the world in its existence. The divine sustainer and holder. The earth is on pillars. He set the world upon them to be sustained, to be held up. The Spirit of the Lord is pointing out to us the absolute sovereignty of God over all the earth. He has put the world on pillars. It's in his hands. It's in his control. He has absolute right and authority over it. It's very interesting poetry here. The pillars of the earth. He set the world upon them. Two different words, but the same place, the same thing, the earth, the world, our habitable planet, the world that is lived upon and inhabited by men, the land upon which men live and move and have their existence in this present evil age, the habitable world, the earth that in the beginning God created and the world that he founded for men to live in and to spread abroad throughout all the earth as they multiply. It's that world. And in the Psalms you often find this parallelism between the earth and the world. For example, Psalm 19, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's where men live. It's not so much the sea as to the habitations of men and people on the planet. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. You never think of the world without inhabitants. God so loved the world. Not just the planet. It's not a planet void of inhabitants but the inhabitants. It's the people that is in the mind of God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. The inhabited parts of it Where men are found, let the earth, its inhabitants, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So these are Psalms where they have earth and world, plain parallelism, and the emphasis is upon the the inhabitants of the world. And whenever it says here, the pillars of the earth, the world on the pillars and on the foundation, what we have to keep in mind is not just the material planet, but the inhabitants, every one of whom God reverses and turns around as he pleases and chooses. That's what's in mind here. And by pillars here is meant columns, like the columns of a building. I picture not so much man-made columns, but hills, steep hills or steep mountains that seem to be holding a flat planet upon which men are living. That's the image. But We're not to think that the Bible teaches the world is flat or that it is literally on such columns. This is poetry. 
Poetry is full of imagery and metaphor. And so we are to draw the truth from the imagery of the poetry uh, and not to be literal in, in regard to these things. So, so we have the image of huge columns of mountains, huge steep cliffs that are holding the vast, vast world and all the people are moving about on that platform of the earth. And God is sovereign over them, reversing and changing things around with them as he pleases in his absolute sovereignty. God sustains the world. God controls the world. So this is referring to creation, but primarily to God's providence, sustaining. In other words, God didn't just leave the world and way off he went. He never looked at it again. Like the little boy who builds his railway line and then you know he grows up a wee bit later on and he never goes and looks at it and never visits it. That's not God. God is always interested in his world. God is always acting on his world. God is always taking part in the drama of human history to bring it to the grand conclusion of the, the great reversal of all, the new heavens and the new earth at the end. So the image is conveying to us the, the truth that God is active in the world, not only interested, but bringing it to its grand climactic conclusion. You see, God has not just the power to reverse things. He's omnipotent, that's very true, but that's not what Hannah is talking about. Not just the power, the ability to do it. What Hannah is saying is, he has the right to do it. He's the right to do it. Because he has put that world on its pillars, and he is absolute sovereign over it. So this is a song about the absolute sovereignty of God. He is God of the whole globe. Now, let, let's look at this first contrast and the first two reversals. The bows of the mighty men are broken and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Now you'll see here the contrast is between mighty men and stumbling men. This says strong men on the one hand and weak men on the other, because men who are stumbling, they, they look weak and frail and tottering, weak. So with a contrast here between mighty, ones who aren't stumbling, ones who are very strong, very brave, very courageous, very powerful. But the mighty man is the warrior in the Bible. The mighty man is the world's hero, like Goliath. He's one of these mighty men. That God brings down. And there are others too. The hero of the world. Do you know who the first mighty man named in the Bible is? He was called Nimrod. And you read about him in Genesis chapter 10 verse 8. And this is where the word is first occurring. Mighty, the mighty man, the mighty man. The first time it occurs with a named individual is in regard to Nimrod. Genesis 10 verse 8. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one. A mighty man in the earth. He was a hero. Hollywood is talking a lot about heroes now. Making films about heroes now. This seems to be the whole thing now. Heroes. Oh the world needs a hero. The world is always creating heroes. Because it's godless. 
and they won't look to the Lord. So they had to have something in, his, in the Lord's place. Heroes. And Nimrod is the world's hero. And he began to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there even began to be sayings about him. Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. He was a valiant man. He was brave. He was fearless. But this is the thing. He was most wicked. And he was rebellious. And you know what he built? Babel. He's the hero that built Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Sound familiar? Book of the Revelation. That great city over all the earth. Hasn't gone away yet. Nimrod commenced it all. The devil's seed. The serpent's seed. It continues. The world's heroes in Babylon. They continue. And this seed of the serpent is corrupt. He's wicked. He's against God. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, Not for the Lord. But against the Lord. A mighty hunter against God's people. The first builder of that great city. That rules over all the earth. So Babylon has its mighty ones. Didn't we see that? There's Antichrist. There are the kings of the earth that uh, fornicate with her. The wicked of the world, you see, are often strong. The mighty men. The world's ones are often the ones who are gifted. Aren't you amazed sometimes at the gifts and abilities and the talents of the world's people? The world's politicians. Some of them have great abilities, great intellect, great talents. Natural abilities are full of them. And Satan's kingdom is filled with men who are like this, mighty ones. And Hannah had a little taste of mighty ones even in her own life. You remember Penina? Wasn't she a mighty adversary? Hannah was just weak and powerless before her. Just a little meek woman before Penina. The strongest adversary, of course, that we have to face is Satan. And he's a mighty one in the earth. And his powerful fallen devils are mighty ones too. What does the Lord Jesus call Satan? The strong man armed. The mighty one armed. That's Satan. With the weapons of awful warfare that he uses against the church. His devious devices. His subtle snares. He's a mighty one. He shoots out his fairy darts. The bows of the mighty are strong. He has his fairy darts. He shoots them out. He's mighty as a roaring lion. He's as fearful as the fairy dragon. He's as terrifying as the great red serpent that we read in the book of the Revelation that wars with angels and wars with humanity and especially keeps the most ferocious aspects of his arsenal for the godly seed, for the remnant of the seed of Jesus Christ, the church. Remember how Luther put it, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. The mighty warrior. Not only have we the strong man armed to contend with in our warfare 
we have also to contend with his seed among men, and they're great too, as I have said a few moments ago. You know, the wicked are not timid when it comes to opposing God and his people. They're not timid to oppose creation. They're not timid to drive us uh, from teaching the Bible out of the schools. They're not hesitant and fearful about these things. They are ready to bend their bow. And they fearlessly bend their bow. And God here is bold as lions very often. Bold to bring in unrighteous laws. No shame, no hesitancy. No cowardice about the matter. They're bold to defy God's commandments. They're bold to shake their fist at the Lord. They're bold to say, let's break his cords from us. Let's take away his hedges. Let's remove those ancient paths. Let's turn the world upside down. Let's change the whole order of morality. And let's do this great reversal ourselves. They're bold to do this. The champions of error are not timid numbskulls, I can tell you. They are energized. And they use the natural talents that God has given them. But they use them against God. And his sovereignty. The Bible says. Wherefore do the wicked live? Why are they so alive? It's not just that they're living. But they're lively. Why do the wicked live? Why do they seem so full of life? Why do they become old? Yeah. And are mighty in power. The psalm says concerning the wicked. They're enclosed in their own fat. And with their mouth they speak proudly. They're not timid. There's no meekness there. No weakness. I've seen the wicked in great power, David says. Spreading himself like a green bay tree. They have strong bows, eloquence, knowledge, resources, talents. God's people on the other hand. They're just a weak, feeble folk such as we are here tonight. Just a humble people. What are we? We don't have all the resources of ungodliness. We certainly can't behave the way the ungodly behave in their vileness. We can't lie. We can't create havoc. We can't stir up things. We can't be nasty and arrogant and fleshly. We can't use fleshly wisdom. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We cannot resort to the bow, the strong bow, this mighty bow. We can't resort to their devices, their arsenal. We can't resort to violence. We can't resort to their methods. Although sometimes the church has fallen into that trap. But we can't. What was Hannah able to do before Penina? Was she going to fight with her and pull her hair out? Was she going to pester Helkana to divorce her? Was she going to lie about her and trip her up? And kind of expose her and, you know, get her ruined by, by lies and deceit the way that they ruin us. It is evident that Hannah bore all of that silently, that cross. And trusted in God about it all. Without resorting to violence or to Penina's methods or to worldly ways. You see... Our meekness, our Christ-like meekness, 
does not allow us to do that. And that's weakness in the world. But not with God. For he says the meek shall inherit the earth. He'll bring the great reversal where the meek will inherit it. Not the mighty heroes of Babylon, but the meek. So the wicked are are wolves. And the saints, they're sheep, aren't they? Wolves equal strong. Wolves equal self-sufficient. What are sheep? Sheep equal weak. Sheep equal need their shepherd. Sheep equal lost without a shepherd. That's what sheep equal. So we're weak. We're the poor and needy. We're the harmless as doves. We're the stumbling, the tottering, the wavering. They that stumbled. How that describes us at times, brethren and sisters. The just falleth. Same word. The just man stumbleth. Seven times. Always stumbling the people of God. But they rise up again. What does the Bible say? Strengthen ye the weak hands. Confirm the stumbling knees. The same word. Feeble knees. The feeble stumbling knees. Confirm them. Strengthen these stumbling knees. How often our faith is weak. Stumbling faith. How often we slacken in the things of God. Stumbling followers of the Lord. How often we go astray like the lost sheep. Stumbling. How often are we filled with doubt. How often are we timid. Stumbling. How often we tremble. And even become cowardly. No match for the heroes of the world. Hannah was tottering. Wasn't she? Whenever she went into that sanctuary. Why do you think Eli thought she was drunk? She was broken hearted. She hardly knew which way to turn or what to do. She just cried out in the silence of her heart unto God. But she was in an awful state. And physically she was in an awful state as well. And, and Eli looked at her and he seen the sight of her. He thought, she's drunk. Stumbling and tottering about like a drunken man. Maybe she's thinking of that whenever she uses this word. Let it stumble. She's stumbling. She didn't weep, you see. She hadn't been eating. She'd been fasting. She could well have been stumbling. Her heart is grieved, the Bible says. She was in bitterness of soul, the text says. She wept sore. The afflictions of thine handmaid, she says in her own lips. A sorrowful spirit. Complaint of grief. I'm using the words that the Holy Spirit uses to describe Hannah. Tottering. In the storm, like that man on the ship, tossed to and fro on the ship, like a drunken man, Eli saw a sorry sight. Perhaps we're a bit hard on him, you know. Perhaps if we saw the woman, uh, we might be in the similar situation. She was so distressed. Perhaps, literally then, Hannah was tossed, stumbling. And God reversed the whole situation. She's not stumbling now. As she comes back again, she has her horn exalted. Praising God. Firm, steadfast, sure. Because the stumbling one was girded. What does it say there? They that stumble are girded with strength. The stumbling are girded. Now, whenever you're girded, it's not something from within, you know. Girding is from without. Like holding up a building. 
Or it's the image here of maybe a suit of clothes or a bit of armor put on. A coat, being clothed, being guarded with strength. It's something from without enfolding her, enclothing her, encompassing her. And she's come to the right place. Because she's before God on his throne. And you know what the Bible says about God on his throne? The Bible says that he is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself. And what has happened is Hannah has come before the Lord in all her tottering state. She's come before God. You know what God has done? He's put his robe around her. He's enfolded her. That robe of strength that he has He has cast it over her to strengthen her. It's come from without. It's come from the throne of grace. You know where you get it? You get it in prayer. You get it when you pray to God. It's not something you make up. Oh, you know, know, read a few books, you know, become confident and reliant, you know. No, no. She's before God. And she's being girded with strength as she cries from her heart unto the Lord. So it shows the importance and value of prayer uh, where we can tottering and poor and needy. But we have to pray. And the importance of hearing God's word because that's what God's word does to you. It girds us with strength. And I find it more and more remarkable how Hannah is saying these things at the start. And David, he's repeating them at the end of the book. In 2 Samuel 22 verse 40, Thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me, thou hast subdued under me. So the saints are strengthened with might by God in the inner man. Now they find always, my grace is sufficient for you. And where do we get grace? Let us come boldly onto the throne of grace. The very same place Hannah went. That we may obtain grace. And find the help and get the strength. In the time of need. And his grace there obtained is made perfect in our stumbling weakness. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The saint of God must confidently assert and pray for that strengthening from the Lord. And through his grace the saints of God who are just like Hannah. Just simple humble people through grace. They get strength to quench the violence of the fire and to escape the edge of the sword and to turn the enemies and to wax valiant in the fight and out of weakness are made strong. Hebrews 11 and all of that, the great reversals that God brings to them that come to the throne of grace and have faith and believe in the Lord. He giveth power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall soar into the heavenlies, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. But not only does he gird the weak, the stumbling with strength, bless his name, likewise, God breaks the devices of the wicked. He breaketh the bows of the mighty man. That's what God does. We have to remember this. He snaps their bows asunder. He doesn't only snap their bows asunder. He grounds them 
to powder. He shatters them, as the word might express. The bows are shattered by God. God shuts their mouths. Penina was silenced. Her bow was broken. Hophni and Phineas are to be dealt with. Their bows are to be broken. God is always the victor, you see, in the battle between right and wrong. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And this imagery is taken up in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 37, their sword shall enter into their own heart and their, their bows shall be broken. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. Psalm 46, verse 9, he breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder and burneth the chariot in the fire. And a good picture of this is seen in the Temple of Dagon, isn't it? Uh, which we're coming to in the chapters ahead. The Philistines, they're strong, they're mighty, they defeat the righteous. Uh, so it seemed they're proud, they're triumphant. They even get the Ark of the Covenant and they drag it away and they put it into the Temple of Dagon. Triumphant, proud and arrogant. The mighty Philistines have won the day. But then God girded with his strength arose and tipped over Dagon and broke him in pieces. He broke him. He who broke the Philistine God. That's where he started. You see, God, God humbled himself. As Jesus Christ humbled himself. God humbled himself and the ark was taken. It was taken and was brought into the lowest humiliation. But he arose. He arose. And he knocked over Dagon. He destroyed him that had the power of death. And then he went out and destroyed the Philistines. So it's all here. The ark returned to the people of God and strengthened them to put down Philistine rule. And so this prophetess is speaking truly. The bows of the mighty men are broken. She sees it. She can see into the future. She can see the Philistine destruction and beyond. So then let us be like her congregation and not resort to carnal wisdom and to the tactics of the world, the nasty tactics of the world to do God's work. We don't have to. We must not. Christians are not nasty people. We suffer patiently, meekly, but we pray. Let us pray and pour out our poor broken hearts onto God, onto our dear Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to whom alone, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, belongs all power and all glory. And he can turn things about. Bless his name.